I was sexually assaulted when I was six or seven. And I didn't remember it until I was shooting a video. I was an adult at this point for a nonprofit organization here that I was working at, but I also went to when I was younger. And I don't remember what triggered it, but when I was sitting there and the camera was rolling, I remembered that I was sexually assaulted when I was six or seven. And I was so scared and confused, like how did I forget that? How did I not remember that? But it's our mind's way to protect us. We at the Collective Perspective Podcast have set out on a mission to understand some of the most impactful and controversial trends and topics in our lives today. Hi, I'm Jeff. I'm Travis. I'm DJ. Can we find common ground in the middle in a peaceful manner? Not for political gain. But for real community benefit. We believe so. As veterans and concerned citizens, we are bringing together diverse views and fact-based research to navigate this tough terrain in search of a viable path forward. Only time will tell, but if we listen with open minds and try to understand each other, we just may find a solution. Or two, collectively. That is why we care about what you have to say. If something piques your interest or ruffles your feathers or tickles your fancy or whatever else you'd like, leave us an audio message at podinbox.com backslash collective perspective podcast, all one word, or directly on our show page at mtsjax.fm backslash collective perspective podcast. You'll have to log in, but that won't cost much more than your time. We'll be discussing your messages on the show, whether you give us a high five or say, hey, you better do some fact checking, fool. As long as it's positive and it's your perspective, we'll possibly give you some airtime. But remember, it needs to be family-friendly and not defamatory in nature. Hey, everybody. This is Collective Perspective Podcast, and we're here in sunny Jacksonville, Florida, talking with you collectively from the Main Street Suite at Mix Theory Studios. Collectively. Hey, everybody. This is Jeff, and I'm here with DJ and uh, Travis are here with me. What's up? Yodalehihu. And Miss Tatiana Yogez. Hi. Hey. Thank you for coming, Tatiana. And Tatiana has a very tough story for a lot of people to hear. But, you know, we are doing this podcast for all our loved ones, all your loved ones. We want people to be aware of what to look for when these perpetrators are these... What's devils. The devils. We don't curse on the show, but if you want to, DJ, you can yeah, Jeff gave me a green light. I almost had a Samuel Jackson moment just now. <laughs> oh, man. You would have been on everything. <laughs> Tatiana uh, and her sisters were taken at the ages of 12 and 13. U.S. stats show that currently, and this was uh, 20 years ago that this happened to her and her sisters, but currently the average is uh, 15 years old, uh, according to childrensrights.org. Can you explain the day when this all happened or was there anything like leading up to it that later on you're like, okay, now that kind of made sense. I can see why so-and-so did that to get us to do this. No, we were just hanging out being teenagers later than we should have. We didn't have the permission. We were doing what we wanted to do. And Jessica and Nicole and myself, we were getting ready to leave and we're at someone's house and it was late. We were getting ready to walk home, and a car pulled up, and it had a few guys in the car. And they just was complimenting us, and, like, it was cold outside. It was January. And asked if we wanted to ride home. Like, you know, do you want to ride home? We'll take you home. 
So we got in the car. And from there, I want to say for myself, being in the car maybe five minutes, I realized that it wasn't what I thought it was going to be, like just a ride home. They had a lot more expectations of us, and our main trafficker was like, you're with us now. I'm not taking you home. You're, you're with us. And from there, he brought us straight to a hotel room. It's actually a hotel room off of Lane Avenue. So from there, I would say that looking back, of course, we shouldn't have gotten in the car with someone we didn't know. But I was 12. I had no clue. They seemed nice. They, I mean, they were African-American men. I mean, we were all minorities. And it just didn't seem like a bad idea until we got in the car. And from there, it was just downhill. So you were rebelling against your parents. How did your parents respond to this? I didn't feel like I was rebelling at the time. I just felt like it was something that I wanted to do, and I just did it. When we escaped and when we did make it back home, I mean, our parents weren't angry. Well, my mom was, but that really wasn't a conversation. Like, why did you leave? It was just more so we're happy you're home. How long were you under control of this guy? We were trafficked for almost a month. And so it was a very long month. The night it happened, what was going through your mind between the night they picked you up and took you to the motel all the way up to like that following morning? I felt like I was in a dream, like in a twilight zone. Like I just felt like it's unreal. It's almost like waking up one day, you know, having a normal day and doing your normal routine and then you get in your car and then a tragic accident happens. It's just like it's very quick and you wouldn't expect anything like that to happen to you. Jessica and Nicole, mm-hmm. how, were, how did they take it? We all were scared, confused. Like, why is he doing this? You know, we pleaded with him. We told him our age. And at that point, I feel like, I don't know this, but I feel like he was already in so deep for essentially kidnapping us. Yeah. Like, we, you didn't bring us where you said you were going to bring us. You wouldn't let us get out the car. And back then, 20 years ago, I lived on the south side. I didn't never go to different sides of town. So it felt like I was in a completely different place. Like, I was not even in Jacksonville anymore. For me, I think he felt like he was in too deep. It was already done. Why let you go and take the chance that you tell? Did you think that it could turn for worse? It could have definitely went too far. It could have. But when we escaped, he wasn't around. But he threw Jessica off of a balcony. He tried to wow. hit Nicole with a car. And in the book, I talk about Jessica, that whole situation that happened. And I didn't see her get thrown off the balcony because the door closed. So my memory was the door closed and then I seen her on the first floor. So that's how I tell it in our book because that's what I remembered. And we are super close with one of the lead detectives in the sexual assault crime unit. And she just happened to run across our file, our statements, everything. So we were able to get that in. Jessica's statement, that's when I realized she was thrown off the balcony and all the pieces started connecting. 
it was like, of course she got thrown off the, the balcony because she was on the first floor when the door opened. But my young mind, alcohol, drugs, it just it was a blur. My first thought is, did you girls even know what sex was at 12 and 13 years old? No. So then all of a sudden, it's just like, boom, in your face. Right. And none of us had present fathers. So we really didn't have, like, a healthy idea of what a man is, let alone a father, and, like, how men are supposed to treat and interact with children and young women. So, yeah, I had no idea what sex was. I mean, I knew what it was, but I didn't know what it was. From that initial first day, first 24 hours, what would you say was the crazy commands or anything that they forced you to do against your will? Sex. Just being sexually intimate with grown men. You know, he would give us handfuls of pills and make us wash it down with Hennessy. And I don't remember eating, to be honest. I don't. There was a heavy drug presence, illicit or like prescription. Right. Well, at the time, we didn't know. I did have an idea. One was ecstasy. But what came up in our system when we escaped and they did all like their tests and stuff was like oxycodone, ecstasy, angel dust, all types of stuff. Yeah. I'm like, angel dust? Like, what is that? And it's PCP. And cocaine. Dang. A lot of cocaine. He did cocaine. He was like a cokehead. And he put it in my face. Like, he had sniffed it. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. And he yelled, scared me, basically. And then I just did it. I didn't even know how to do it. Like, I just, he had to show me. We didn't have a choice. Nothing was a choice. You were just doing everything for a survivor, pretty much. In that situation, there is no such thing as no. He didn't present it to me as, do you want to do this or do you it wasn't that it was put it in my face under my nose sniff this now i remember you said when they initially picked you all up it was a what like three three so where were the other two those were more like his homeboys that just did what he said do they were definitely a part of it but our main trafficker was him him. did they ever separate you girls or were you always together i don't know what you would call the term of actually having sex with a John. Oh, no. The trick would be more like you consent to it, no? Mm-hmm. Right. He got us one room. It was two beds, and no, there was no need to do that. The only time we were separated was, and I've actually, I think I found it. Uh, Black Magic was like an old strip club here. I remember that on the north side, right? Yeah, I just yeah. found it. It's not there anymore. The building isn't there, but it was right next to Zebos because I've been looking for it for a while, but I couldn't find it because it wasn't there. But he brought us there, and we stayed in the car because we were underage, and a whole bunch of guys came out, and they, like, crowded around the car. They were literally picking us, like, oh, I want that one. Oh, I want that one. Like, they were grown men. Grown men. Grown men. And from there, we went around a corner to a house. The only thing I remember, and I've, I've tried to find this house, but I haven't been able to find it, because all the houses over there look long. But I remember it being not like a normal house. It was long. It seemed like five or six bedrooms. So when we got there, a guy grabbed Nicole, and then Jessica 
was being brought into a room and she came to me and was like, if I don't come out this room in five minutes, come get me. But we were on drugs, alcohol, all types of things. So I was with our trafficker because for some reason, like he kept me near him. He took an interest in you. Right. Maybe because I was the youngest. I'm not really sure. So I was with him. And then it just dawned on me that I completely forgot to go get Jessica out the room. So when I remembered it, I jumped up and I ran into the room and there were so many men in there. Like it just, she didn't go in there with that many men. She went in there with one and she was crying. She was upset. She was mad at me because I forgot. And a guy came from behind the door, out the closet, under the bed. And I don't know what happened to her in there. She never told me. But that was the only time we were separated. And after that, we never, never separated. We would, we would pee together. We would shower together. We did everything together. Now, like I mentioned, uh, this has been 20 years. But how fresh is the horror in your mind? I mean, it's not horror anymore. Like, I've embraced... Well, I guess that's my term, but that would be... Right. Yeah. Sometimes things are still triggering, yes. But is it heavy on me like that? No. Like, I found purpose within that pain. And I think that is actually a coping mechanism for me to just do the work. But I think about it all the time. How long would you say did it take throughout the 20 years for it to get better with time? To be honest, for all those years, we just kind of blamed ourselves. We did that. We shouldn't have been out. We got in the car. And so it was like it hurt, but it was almost like I was numb to it because I just blamed myself for it. So I never acknowledged it in that way. I just knew I was carrying a burden, but I didn't know how to release it. And then after Jessica was murdered, I just had this idea because we were all writers. Like we always wrote everything and Jessica was a real writer like she wrote every single day of her life she kept a journal in her purse and I was like we should just tell our story this is before trafficking was identified sex trafficking because there was no such thing 20 years ago they just considered us prostitutes before we go more into this topic can you tell us about how you escaped yeah at this time he had brought us to an apartment with like his people. The total time from the time they took you to the time that you guys finally escaped was about a month? Correct. Okay. So he would bring us different places because he wouldn't always be with us. So he would leave us with people to be with us. And I, I feel like this guy, I don't know his name. I just remember what he looked like. He's seen what was happening and he had to have acknowledged that we were young, um, too young to be there with them. Our trafficker kept us naked. That's one of the first things that he did to us when we got to the room was he stripped us down. He took everything from us, and we were just kept naked. But it wasn't all the time either. He just left some clothes down and, like, almost, like, turned his turned away. Like, you better speaking without speaking, if that makes sense. So from there, once we left, I really don't remember how we got home I just remember running I remember getting to the end of Jessica Street and running to her house I remember that I remember going in the bathroom and I hadn't even started my cycle yet like I 
I hadn't experienced that yet. The day that we got to Jessica's, I, as soon as we got there, I started my cycle. And I never had before. Like, so I didn't even know how to take care of that. So Did you realize, like, oh, I'm experiencing womanhood, I'm, I'm having my cycle? Or? Yeah, I mean, I just knew I was bleeding. I had bled when my virginity was taken, but it wasn't like that. And so Nicole and Jessica had already experienced it, and they told me. And then we had gotten in the shower, and then the police arrived. They're like, no, don't take a shower. Don't, you know, for evidence purposes. And But we had already been in the shower. Do you think there's some type of stereotype where the media portrays sex trafficking as, like, maybe a certain ethnicity or... Absolutely. Or affluence or affluence. yeah, uh, wealth or average kind of person. Right. I do. I feel like society paints sex trafficking to be a young white girl that just got picked up by a trafficker, and which that does happen, but it definitely happens to minorities. And I feel like minority women, ethnic women, are overlooked and they're questioned more about their experience. I've seen it happen. You know, you have a, a young white woman or girl who has just escaped her trafficker and is needing services or just needing help. And you don't question that. It's okay, let's get her to help. Let's do whatever needs to be done. But on the other hand, when it's a young black woman or girl, it's, well, you said this happened, but then you said this. But with trauma, the fact is, is that you won't remember everything at that time and just protecting yourself protect your mind mm-hmm. I was sexually assaulted when I was six or seven and I didn't remember it until I was shooting a video I was an adult at this point for a nonprofit organization here that I was working at but I also went to when I was younger and I don't remember what triggered it but when I was sitting there and the camera was rolling I remembered that I was sexually assaulted when I was six or seven and I was so scared and confused. Like, how did I forget that? How did I not remember that? But it's our mind's way to protect us. You think you were just doing what you was told and you think you were doing the right thing. That's what they, whatever they had going on with you. And then realizing that as an adult, like, dang, this is what happened to me back then. Maybe, because, I mean, what is your mind frame at six or seven? Yeah. But... I feel like I would have remembered that. And it was scary how I didn't remember it until that moment. And then from there, I never, obviously, I never forgot it. Was there a label that the law enforcement labeled you when you Oh yeah, they, came to them for help? Yeah, so our statement stated everything that we talk about is for the most part in our statement. So being sold to a lot of men, being drugged and... I feel like we were treated as the suspect. We weren't treated as like a victim. We wasn't treated as like, oh my goodness, this horrific thing and things happened to y'all. Why? It was more like, well, you ran away. They labeled us as runaways, labeled us as promiscuous, grown, fast. This was from the law enforcement, the people that were investigating that did this labeling to you? Yes. So I don't remember who the officer was, but like they write their own statement of like what they have witnessed or seen or heard. And it was really based around what we did, not 
well, who did this to you? Which they did. They did find him, but they charged him with one count of lewd and lascivious battery, which was obviously incorrect. And there was three of us. So when we asked questions about it, because I was I was very upset. How did you feel about law enforcement after that? Oh, I didn't mess with law enforcement at all. There was no point. Like, you already have your view of me. It was almost like that followed us. What was the support like from your family and friends? Were they a good support group for you at that time? Yes and no. I will say my mom, it was just a mother's love. Back then, it just, it felt harsh. It felt like she was angry. She did everything. It felt bad, but if she didn't do that, I probably wouldn't even be alive because none of us thought we'd be alive. It was you and your mother, you Mm -hmm. and your sisters, and were there any other friends or any other acquaintances that you could, say, rely on or fall back on and ask for some support or even just share feelings with or anything to help deal with everything? Because it sounded like law enforcement, they weren't doing much for you. They were actually, it sounds like, adding more stress on top of an already stressful event in your life. Right. And I understand the mother thing. I was raised by my mom. She was a single parent for much of my childhood. And there was a lot of things I look back and I'm like, you know what, mom? Thank you. Right. Especially when you're wiping your daughters behind. (laughs) Right. And you're like, man, my parents did this for me. Right. Like the amount of time and effort they have to put in to be able to have me the way I am now is phenomenal. It sounds like your mother was a big supporter of you and for you. Yes. So my mom, my grandparents, like my family, of course they cared. They were worried, but they didn't, nobody knew how to help me. My father was never present consistently, so I wouldn't consider that support. My aunt Hillary was somebody that I could be myself with. You know, I knew she cared, and it was like a mother, but not my mom. But other than that, no. I went to a lot of programs like lockdown facilities, and I didn't like talking to the therapist because it just felt like they were checking off the boxes almost just doing their job. And you can sit in front of someone and it's like, you don't know me. You don't understand anything about me. You've never been through what I've been through. How can you help me? Right. You didn't feel like there was like no connection, no remorse. Right, no empathy. It was like, this happened and do you want to talk about it? Or why are you so angry? Were you offered any counseling? I was forced to do counseling forced to counseling right why do you feel it I had to it was like sanctions with my court order so wait you were under some type of judicial right arrest or something so I went to a lot of programs but it was more for because they couldn't arrest you for running away that wasn't breaking the law so they got me with truancy because I was missing so much school so after we were trafficked I ran away I was a habitual runner So as soon as I would get home, I would take a shower, pack a bag sometimes, and head back out. So because I was missing so much school, they were able to get me in that truancy court. And every time I did not go to school, they would send me away. It'd be a month. It would be three months and six months. And which it now, I know it slowed me down, so I'm not mad about it and you know in the society that we live in I see it all the time 
the system, it's almost like, especially when you're verified as HT, human trafficking. So there's, you have to be verified. Under 18, you don't have to be necessarily verified with facts. Because a lot of kids don't think they are trafficking victims. But when you ask the questions and the boxes are checked off, we know as professionals that you've been trafficked, but they don't. When you're talking to the, the ones now, you think they're thinking of you as someone who's just checking boxes? Oh, no. So you, you build a rapport with them quickly because right. of your history. I'm an expert. So my lived experience makes me the expert. Right. So I'm going to always be myself. I'm going to be raw. Like, I'm me. I'm not going to be anyone else. I'm going to give it to them exactly how it is, but with love. We like you the way you are. I appreciate that. Yeah, collectively. (laughs) (laughs) Got to throw in a few of those here and there. That's our tag. Yeah, I love it. But no, the young people I work with are amazing. Good. I know young people are generally very resilient and can bounce back from a lot of trauma, a lot of injury, but there's still scars. And it's, it's not something that they should bear alone, I think. As we've said before, thank you for coming on and thank you for Absolutely. what you do. Thank you for having me. It's a super important topic that I, I think is like the conversation that people don't like to have, but people don't like to have it until it's their child, until it's until their it home. Niece. Yeah. Right. And then it's like, wow. Did the counseling help at all? I mean, I know it was forced, but there had to have been some breaking point. Like you didn't get heavily into drugs I and mean, you said you started to run away. How did you cope with that? And how did you overcome that struggle? Because, okay, you had the struggle of being, you know, under control of this guy, but now you have this inner mental struggle in your head and dealing with your mother. How did you get past that to where you are present day, 20 years down the road? I just kind of winged it. The only time when I was younger that I felt or I feel still till this day that counseling was effective was when I went to a program in Fort Walton Beach. They didn't have anywhere else to bring me, so they sent me to a mental health facility. And in Fort Walton, at the bottom is like a boys program. It's like a lockdown facility for boys. And on the second floor or whatever floor above is for mental health youth you know, people who have mental health challenges. I didn't have necessarily those type of mental health challenges, but that's the only place they could find. So this counselor, I don't remember her name, but every day she would come and like try to talk to me and I would just sit there and look at her. And then finally one day she was like, you don't have to talk. You could just sit here. We could look at each other every single day, but the longer you sit here, the longer you're going to have to stay here because that was a part of the sanctions of my court-ordered stay was I had to participate. So then I just started participating because I wanted to get out. But when I did open up over time, I fell in love with the person she was. Like she wasn't as bad as what I felt she would have been. And then from that time into my adult years, I did not have counseling. What was the pivotal moment was when my mom moved from Jacksonville to Orange Park, Middleburg. It was really 
like country then. Like it was a lot of trees and it just, you know, people in Jacksonville didn't drive out there because it was almost like going out of town. Yeah. So that got me away from just the fastness of the city and that slowed me down. And then after that, Jessica was murdered. How was she murdered? She was home and somebody kicked her back door in and came in there and then shot her one time through the heart. She was 18. She was targeted? Yeah. We don't know who did it. It's still unsolved. Okay. Does that play a factor in your feelings towards law enforcement as well? Do you think that kind of put like another dagger on top of what you were feeling beforehand? Yes. At that time, yes. I mean, I didn't expect them to figure it out because just from our history, it was almost like, we were at a funeral all the time. So we were used to death. And we were just used to it just staying in the streets almost. It's like it gets handled in the streets. So I didn't have that expectation because I didn't want to be further disappointed. And I kind of just gave it to God. And that's how I found my peace in that. But we're used to that. Do you remember where you were when you got the news? Of course. I was, because Jessica was 18 I was a senior, and I was in a program where I would go to school for, like, a period or two, and then I would leave and go to work. It was almost like a work release. Right, and you got credit. You got school credit for working. But I was at work, and I worked at a daycare because that was, like, my field because you had to work in the field of whatever your elective was in order for it to count. So I worked at a daycare. I had a two-year-old class, and they were sleeping It was nap time. And then my friends had given me a call and she was like, well, are you sitting down? And I'm like, yeah, like, what's up? Because this person didn't call me regularly. It was not normal. And she's like, Jessica was shot. And I'm like, because me and Jessica wasn't talking at the time. You know, we had that sisterly, a real sisterly relationship. So we weren't talking at that time, but she told me that she had been shot. So I'm like, okay, what hospital is she at? And she's like, no, she's not at a hospital. She's dead. And I'm like, what are you saying to me right now? And it was hard to digest. And I had to leave work. I was so confused because we had lost so many people. Death, like we were numb to death, literally. And the last funeral we went to, We made a promise to each other because we would always go to King's Flea Market to get our shirts made, our rest in peace shirts. And the last shirt we got made, we just looked at each other and promised. It was like, we're not going to no more funerals and we're not getting any more shirts made because we had so many shirts. And, well, I had to go to one last funeral. You and your sister, Nicole, have published a book. Can you tell us about your, your book? Yeah, so it's called Life Outside the Game, Sex Trafficking Testimony. And it's literally what we talked about today it's our story it's what happened to us it goes from my perspective and Nicole's perspective so we're not like merging our perspectives and we just tell our story like that and we did it for Jessica when did the thought come into mind and into play make you want to write the book well Nicole had still been living in California So she would come back and forth, but I hadn't seen her for years. And I don't remember how we got back in contact, but we got back in contact and we just started talking about 
everything that happened to us. And we were almost like putting our pieces together. And when we're having this conversation, you know, Jessica was like the biggest piece because she wrote everything down. She had so many journals and her grandparents burned them when she was murdered because they wanted to honor her privacy, which I understood, but it was heartbreaking because that, you know, when people write, when Jessica wrote, that's like a piece of her. Yeah. Even though she's no longer here, it is almost like it's the closest thing to having her. You've been listening to the Collective Perspective Podcast, a mature show with the intention of making a difference in society. You know, up until this topic, I kind of felt like, you know, I've had some tough things that happened, but no, I haven't had anything close to that. And my heart definitely goes out to you and your sister's I appreciate that. We want to help promote your brand. We believe in our friends benefiting from this too. So, you know, we we want you to be able to, hey, you want to hear more about what our book is or what our purpose is? Listen to this podcast and, and it's all here for you. It's always going to be on the internet. Are you in the works of writing any more? Are you done with just one book? No, I'm a writer, so I love to write. Our first book, we paid a ghostwriter. Her name is Carla DuPont. She's amazing. We would not have been able to get it done without her. Initially, when we started talking about going back to your question, the book, we just had a conversation and we were putting our pieces together. And then I'm like, we need to write a book because what we've been through is so unreal. It's almost like watching a movie in my mind. It's like watching. It's not normal. The stuff that we encountered and dealt with was not normal. So that's when we first started having that conversation. And then I want to say maybe five years later, we picked it back up. And we had initially reached out to Carla when we first started talking about it. So she kind of knew and she's, you know, amazing. And we put it on hold. And I feel like that was God's way of like preparing us because we weren't ready Like, we wouldn't have told everything the way we were just transparent if we would have wrote it when we first started talking about it. And then Carla came back to us and was like, when are y'all going to do it? Y'all need to tell y'all's story. Like, what's up? So from there, she just kind of, she coached us. And we did have to go through intense conversations to give her, basically pouring everything out to her. And then she put it together for us. But yes, so we do have two more books. We have Life Outside the Game, a sex trafficking anthology. We're working with Fearless Storytellers Movement, SFSM, and because they do anthologies of different people telling their story and perspective. So we have four survivors who are telling their story in this anthology. So it's not our story. We're just using Life Outside the Game. And we collaborated with FSM and giving them a platform to tell their stories. So they're authors, and it's just a stepping stone to in whatever direction God has for them. And we have Ten Toes Down, which is Trey Ford and Rec House Publishing. Shout out to Trey Ford. Trey Ford. He's so dope. So we're doing that, and we're not doing it together because it's individual, So she has her own chapter. I have my own chapter. So that's how we're a part of that. So apparently you can get it on Trey's thing, but how would someone be able to view this, listen to it? 
whatever. It would be uh, lifeoutsidethegame.com or Amazon or me directly. And I can be reached at Instagram at I am Tatiana Yogas. And Nicole can be reached at Instagram at I am Nicole McCall. And Facebook with our name. You've been listening to the Collective Perspective Podcast, a mature show with the intention of making a difference in society. So take a ride with us. Join us at the Collective Perspective Podcast, where your personal truths get a little power wash. Like what you heard? Subscribe to the Collective Perspective Podcast whenever you listen to your podcasts. You can also show support for our mission by going to buymeacoffee.com backslash collective pod and donating whatever you feel inspired to. We appreciate any help keeping the lights on to bring you thoughtful and research content as part of this show. Visit the Collective Perspective Podcast show page on mtsjax.fm, Jacksonville's new music and multimedia network sponsored by Mixed Theory Studios. You can find the transcripts of this episode along with the show notes, material references, links you heard about, and more. Hey, I want to give a special shout out and a thanks to the real Jay Dash, a Jacksonville hero, producer, and artist for sharing his original music with this show and to the Mixed Theory Studios for recording and production services. We couldn't have done it without either of them. Thank you so much.